welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. Here again, I'm with a number of Bush School students who did a wonderful project that we're going to work through, um, covering what is a, um, a very interesting and troubling issue that we'll get to talk through. But I'd like to begin by giving them an opportunity to introduce themselves, so you'll be hearing from five other voices other than myself, and that way you can put some names with the voices. Harrison Gregg. Cassie Jones. Emma Alexander. Nick Partifillo. And I'm Zach Weimer. Excellent. So let me begin um, by saying thank you for your work. I know these projects take no short amount of time to do, um, and I'm glad that you took on this issue of civil forfeiture. <clears throat> it's one that's beginning to get a little bit of tension in uh, some national dialogue, but certainly not the amount of attention it deserves. So I'm really looking forward to talking through this with you. But before we jump into that, what uh, what brought this um, issue to your attention and uh, had the group kind of decide to do this, giving that you could pick anything? Well, we had a few ideas going into at the start of this project that we were kind of leaning on. We had actually originally decided on a different topic, and then due to data constraints, we decided to switch over to this. This is our second choice. Um, we were sparked by a John Oliver <laughs> um, segment uh, from about a month and a half ago. And personally, I didn't even know that civil forfeiture was a thing. And so when I heard about it and heard what it was, I said there was no way that was actually something that happens in America. And it does. And I was pretty hooked on it early on. And we all found that this was a very unique problem and one that we really do think needs a big solution. And it's 2018 and this is still going on. So, the, uh, John Oliver was kind of the inciting incident for this. I brought it before the rest of the group when we were determining what we wanted to study. Um, but it came to my attention, not actually through John Oliver, but because I keep an eye on the docket for the Supreme Court mm -hmm. and uh, the Indiana versus Tim's case. It's currently being heard. Uh, the civil forfeiture is, is a central aspect of that, and it's going all the way to um, concepts of applying the amendments to the states. Um, and so this is it's not just an administrative issue at this point. It's also coming down to definitions and actions with the Constitution of the United States. And we're still waiting to see how that one's going to turn out. So I'm not sure that everyone will know what civil forfeiture is and why it's an issue. So <clears throat> before we jump into the history and the different cases that you examine, maybe someone could tell me a little bit about what is civil forfeiture and why it's a problem. So civil forfeiture is essentially a tool used by law enforcement that allows for them to charge people, individuals who are suspected of criminal activity without actually charging the individual in question. So essentially they can charge the property of that individual, which they suspect have been used for criminal means. Um, typically it's used for drug, drug trafficking and money laundering, uh, most commonly. Um, it has a long history going back to um, several centuries, I believe. It was uh, based off uh, custom laws in Great Britain initially. And so if we're going to the history second, so like I said, the United States based it off of strong custom laws um, from Great Britain. Um, the purpose back then was to be able to seize contraband on ships that was outside the reach of the United States legal system. Um, the initial United States Supreme Court case that kind of set this precedent was the United States versus the Brig Malak at Hell. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. <laughs> and there the Supreme Court stated, this is a direct quote, this is done from the necessity of the case as the only adequate means of suppressing the offense or wrong or ensuring an, an identity to the injured party. Um, <laughs> so, again, the goal was they wanted to be able to take the criminal property without, if, even if they couldn't charge the offender uh, themselves. And so, 
this idea was pretty justifiable back in you know the 1700s, 1800s, and for a few hundred years, that was the precedent that it stayed at. Um, the only time it kind of changed from that was in the 20s during the Prohibition era with bootleggers. They wanted to go after the halt productions of like the illegal booze that was being made and how they're making it without being able to actually charge the um, the runners and the ones that were producing it. And so again, between civil, um, excuse me, between the between the customs laws of was original incentive, essentially, geez, originally made, and then during the Prohibition era, that's pretty much what it was used for. Uh, and then, kind of, we get the modern image of civil forfeiture, kind of shape in the early 1970s in the war on drugs. Ah, the so, war on drugs makes another. It <laughs> <laughs> just never ends. It's the it's the harm that keeps on giving. <laughs> yep. So the first law that was big on that was the Comprehensive Drug Abuse and Prevention and Control Act of 1970 which declared that all controlled substances, all raw materials used for controlled substances, anything used to transport controlled substances was now legally forfeitable. So this, and then this was that again letter amended in 1978 to include money, negotiable items, securities, or other things of value that could be used in the transaction of controlled substances. So um, civil forfeiture then kind of took the form of this is how we're going to fight the war on drugs, we're going to get after the materials, we're going to get after the drugs, after the money, and make it difficult for those trafficking the drugs or making it to actually able to keep doing so. The biggest change in the forfeiture laws came in the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, which then expanded the reach again of forfeiture to include all real property used to create or used to commit or facilitate any drug-related offense. Aside from that, the same law gave law enforcement the ability to retain the proceeds of the forfeiture. So this was used to incentivize law enforcement to really go after these drug traffickers and make it even more so their ability to take them on. So <clears throat> the idea there is that the departments that seize things get to benefit financially from them? Yes. 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 So directly. Yeah, directly. <clears throat> so if an officer confiscated a vehicle, that or a car that they believe was used for trafficking drugs, then if the vehicle's worth $10,000, then they just increase their assets by $10,000. If they took actual cash that was, say, $50,000, then they get $50,000 cash. Okay. So... Oh, goodness. I'm going to struggle to get through this one tonight as well. So what is the, um, as we're building it from the history, and maybe this is jumping the gun a little bit, but I noticed <clears throat> in your report you highlight that there are different uh, standards of uh, evidence for uh, for seizing these things. Mm -hmm. So is there a lot of variance across the states? And what what is the you know, uh, reasonable doubt? Is there any standard so for seizing these things? This one is one where it gets really, really squirrely. Um, and part of that is because this is not actually a criminal proceeding. In a criminal court, uh, in order to convict someone, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to have um, probable cause to arrest them, indict them, and then you go through the entire process. But with civil forfeiture, since you're not actually charging an individual, you're charging property, the property has no rights. All that the, pro the officer has to show is that they had a reasonable cause to think that the property might have been used in a crime and they can seize it. There is no burden of proof. They don't have to show any actual proof. Most of the time it's simply something like, I thought I smelled weed, or um, one or two of the cases we read actually simply said, normal people don't carry that much cash. And that's the only justification that's given for seizing that property. So the, the standard for seizing private property is just... The officer thought that uh, something was fishy. They don't actually have to show there. There is almost no burden of proof because it's a civil, a civil case instead of a criminal one. Fantastic. Were well, there other things from the recapping? Any other 
recent things to do with the history that are useful before we jump into how prevalent this is? Yes. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> so after the war on drugs, there it had been it had been civil fortune had been strengthened a lot, and so the first time that it really looked like there was going to be any reform was in 1993 uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court case in Austin ruled that in Austin v. United States, that forfeiture could in fact be considered an excessive fine, which violates the Eighth Amendment. Amendment. They then decided there would still be no statute placed in whether forfeiture could be considered uh, constitutionally excessive. So that was kind of contradicting in our research, um, but that was the first step where people realized that maybe something needs to be done with this. And then that was again taken forward uh, with bipartisan support in 2000, Congress enacted the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act which um, kind of tried to hit civil forfeiture in a multitude of different areas that um, kind of people see a problem with it. There needed to be more provision for the victims, um, excuse me, more provision for the officers to have more than just, I think I smelled weed, so you, I'm going to take your $50,000 of obvious drug money in your car. Um, it would also require that the government pay reasonable litigation costs incurred by a client to prevail in, a, in cases, which is another big thing about civil forfeiture. Many people don't even fight the cases. Um, it's too costly and most of the time they lose anyway. So if the police seize your vehicle, a lot of people just forfeit that and have to move on with their life. So that kind of helped, um, counteract that. And, um, they encouraged, the act also encouraged to use criminal forfeiture as opposed to civil forfeiture. Um, so while this was a good start, there really hasn't been much since then. Um, the civil asset, um, Forfeiture Reform Act was a step in the right direction, as I said, but as of even last year, there really hasn't been anything else to change civil forfeiture, and even though it has bipartisan support, it really just kind of becomes stagnant. There's a, another term that's going to become very important as we go forward here, because we're not just dealing with something that's state and local um, police forces. Um, there's also civil forfeiture that goes on at the federal level. Now, this is enabled in part by something that's called equitable sharing. You may have heard of this recently in the news with Jeff, Jeff Sessions trying to reinstate this. It's, it's been a, a really big deal. But the basic idea behind equitable sharing is that even if a state, for instance, I believe that South Carolina has banned um, civil forfeitures by their state police, if state police refer someone to the feds or seize property and pass it along to the federal government, then they are not the ones who are performing the seizure, but they still get to share in the profits. It gets split between the federal and the state level. And so you really run into this issue where even if you have individual states that are doing a very good job with this, um, unless you have a blanket federal legislation, it's going to be very, very difficult to prevent this from happening. And what's the, the difference? Nick, you mentioned um, um, civil versus criminal. Does the criminal have a different standard, or when does it become criminal forfeiture? Criminal, you need to actually be able to charge someone with a crime, is the main difference. And so, again, right now, it can be no normal person walks around with $50,000 cash in their car, therefore, you're a criminal, so I'm going to take this. Um, if they used, if they instead switched over to more um, use of criminal forfeiture, then they would actually only just uh, to charge the individual with a crime, making it more difficult for law enforcement to take advantage of citizens. And, you know, if, if you're charged with drug trafficking, then it makes sense that the police should be able to take your drug trafficking money and the vehicles you use and any other tools and such in the process. You have some burden of proof yeah. associated with this? Exactly. <laughs> and the burden of proof extends beyond ownership. For instance, one of the cases that we looked at involved a couple that were retired. Their grandson sold $20 worth of weed on their porch to a police informant. And their house was raided by SWAT and their house was seized uh, for a 
$20 transaction on their property that they were unaware of by someone who wasn't even on the deed for the mm -hmm. house. Um, so there are extremely few limits on how this can be applied, and it's preferred to civil proceedings, or to, pardon me, to criminal proceedings, partially because there are far fewer restrictions on it. It proceeds faster, and they see a lot more benefit from it. So what's the national picture of this? I mean, this sounds, you know, very, uh, just, uh, this is big government at its finest, maybe, and then being incentivized by profit-seeking. So it seems like this could be a really big issue. Um, what does the national data tell us about the prevalence of this? So in terms of changes over time and the amount of money that's actually been collected through civil forfeiture, there's been a significant increase since about 1986 and between that and 2016, so a 30-year period we looked at. Um, specifically, in 1986, there was a total seized through, um, this is reported through the Department of Justice that acquired through um, civil asset forfeiture, there was about $93.7 million, um, as opposed to 2016 in which 1.9 billion was collected. So this is a significant increase because even accounting for inflation, that doesn't explain the difference in total amount that's yeah. been collected. What's really interesting about this total too is that how difficult it actually is to get this information. So um, I mentioned that this was through the Department of Justice, but we were not able to actually get this data directly. We actually had to go through a different source which collected it through a um, Freedom of Information request. And what's interesting is this same organization we got it through, which was the um, Institute of Justice, uh, they actually have on their website the data that they were provided through the Freedom of Information request. And what's interesting about it is it's the most convoluted set of data I've ever seen. Um, it's not well organized. It's, I mean, you would have to have some foreknowledge or some ability to dig through it to actually dig through it. So for us, like any one of us, we couldn't do it because we just don't have that kind of expertise, unfortunately. Um, so this is something we'll actually be talking about later is the um, availability of this information and the easiness of access to it. Um, as far as the big picture as well, there's also the problem of um, the uh, uh, payouts that state and local agents, law enforcement agencies have received through the civil, civil asset forfeiture program. Uh, so between 2000 and 2013, there was an increase from about $198 million to about 643 million million dollars in 2013. So these, this is money that the state and um, local law enforcement agencies get back through the federal government uh, for basically um, enforcing federal civil asset forfeiture, which can be is just entirely different from most states' um, laws and regulations regarding that. And one of the things we'll talk about later is um, there is this principle of different states and local law local areas having very strict regulations on civil asset forfeiture. Okay. The problem is they can easily circumvent that through using federal principles. And there's actually a program that they used is a kickback program, which is what these payouts are through so that they actually get a cut of that and they're incentivized to carry out federal civil asset forfeiture uh, regulations and programs instead of their state and local laws. Kickback uh, and payouts are just yeah. Yeah. corruption. Yeah, it is a very corrupt system. And additionally, what's problematic with this is the fact that a lot of these local and state agency law enforcement agencies actually um, incorporate that into their budget, the money that they're going to receive. Um, so they'll often argue that they need to have access to this extra, basically what's kind of like a, lack of a better term, like a slush fund of money that they can get through, you know, um, get through accessing uh, fund or accessing seizing um, assets from alleged criminals 
And so there's about 20, roughly 20% of the budget outlays for many um, local and uh, state departments are accessed through this means. Um, in addition to that, 80% um, of property owners do not actually, uh, say, for example, that their assets are taken through what they allege to be incorrectly taken or that they are not um, liable for the crimes that allegedly they use that material for. 80% um, do not actually end up uh, filing a complaint regarding it and trying to get their assets back. So definitely that, in regards to that, that is an, definitely an issue of the process involved in actually getting back their assets or filing a complaint could be improved. So, yeah, it sort of has the smell of a tax on the poor, mm -hmm. right? You cut taxes, cut taxes in the police departments and these local uh, law enforcement agencies still need resources. And to your point, 80% don't even bother trying to get their property back. And my guess is the only reason you wouldn't try to get your property back is if you couldn't afford to get it back or to go through the process of getting it back. Well, not only just because you can't afford it. It's not simply an issue of wealth because in many cases what the police are looking for are larger scores, things like being able to seize a home, things like being able to seize large sums of money. So individuals feasibly could, but often what you see, uh, we have a, a quote near the end of our report from Justice Clarence Thomas, where he calls this an egregious practice. Um, and the specific incident that he's referring to there had to do with a small town in Texas that was specifically targeting individuals traveling through, stopping them, and then seizing goods, cars, whatever they had on them. And the interviews and the testimony from the people involved in that stated that it wasn't just an issue of not being able to pursue this or not wanting to fight this, but they were informed by the police that they could either sign over their goods to the police or they would be charged with a federal offense and they would have their children taken away. That's so there's, there's an, there is a definite aspect of extortion almost mm -hmm. to this where it's not just going after people you know can't come at you but also threatening extreme measures if you don't comply. So you offer two different cases from two different states. Um, the first one is on New Mexico. So let's talk a little bit about the New Mexico case and why you chose to work with that one. Yeah, so um, New Mexico, um, in 2015, they became the second state um, to, act to actually enact legislation um, that essentially got rid of civil forfeiture. It became criminal forfeiture. Um, and so they, um, the reason why we chose New Mexico specifically was because, according to the Institute for Justice, which is a libertarian law firm, um, they're pretty popular. They've had a lot of um, cases in the Supreme Court and things like that. They actually rate New Mexico um, as the state like with the best laws pertaining to this issue. Um, and that kind of comes from the fact that they are the only state right now um, that, like I said, has completely removed um, the civil part and it. You have to have a criminal conviction in order to have your property seized. Um, additionally, they have laws um, surrounding like um, people um, like innocent people, like third party bystanders. So like, for example, you know, if someone does something illegal on your property, but you have no idea that it took place, it doesn't hurt you. It hurts that person. Um, and then additionally, none of the proceeds. So if they do actually do a criminal uh, forfeiture, none of the proceeds go to law enforcement. It actually goes back to the state government and then they decide from there, like where it will go. Um, now their laws aren't perfect. Um, there's a few, 
you know, there's a few things um, wrong here and there. Um, but it was like really interesting because before they passed the law in 2015, they spent eight years trying to pass this law. Um, and in 2014, um, the just from like what was actually reported, um, there was over $2 million in civil forfeiture that went directly into law, law enforcement. Um, so, um, and then a year later, the law passed. Um, and now also law enforcement um, is actually required by the state to report when they even have a criminal forfeiture case. Um, and the state kind of like manages it now. Um, which is actually really, really interesting, I think. Um, so we kind of looked at New Mexico um, just to say, like, okay, this is – someone's doing it right. Mm -hmm. So – which kind of led us to someone who's doing it wrong. Which, as I can tell from your report, is Massachusetts. Yeah, Massachusetts is the complete polar opposite of New Mexico dealing <laughs> with civil forfeiture. So they were rated um, by the Institute for Justice. They were given an F – further laws on civil forfeiture because they have the lowest bar to forfeit property. So they don't need um, proof beyond a reasonable doubt or sorry, they don't need a preponderance of evidence. They don't need a crim criminal conviction. They just need probable cause to say, Hey, like we said before, I think I smell marijuana in your car. I'm going to take your car and everything that's in it. So there is really no bar to be able to seize property. Um, there's also very poor protections for innocent people involved with civil forfeiture and up to 100% of the proceeds in Massachusetts from civil forfeiture go to the law enforcement. Um, so what I found in Massachusetts that there's 11 district attorney's offices and they control where all the money goes and how it's being spent. Um, and there's very little transparency there. They really don't have to report um, how they're spending all this money. Um, for example, in Chelsea, Massachusetts, over 86% of civil forfeiture funds received were listed as other whenever they reported it. So that's a whole lot of money that um, we have no idea where it's going. Um, another example is in Worcester, Massachusetts. They spent 10% of their civil forfeiture funds on what they called community-based crime prevention and youth activities. So this seems like it's a good thing, but when you get more in-depth and look into it a little bit more. Um, they're actually spending this money on already very wealthy, very developed neighborhoods as opposed to um, maybe not as wealthy, underdeveloped neighborhoods. So it's still not, it's like they're, they're trying to say that they're being helpful, but they're really not being as helpful as they could be. I mean, regarding the, inner, it, regarding the innocent, um, in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, there was a motel called the Motel Caswell. It's a family-owned hotel, or motel, sorry. And it had around a million dollars in assets. And over the course of the time that the motel had been in existence, they worked closely with police officers and law enforcement um, whenever there was crime occurring on their property or other drug deals. But the Tewksbury Police Department ended up going after them. Um... They attempted to seize the motel and all of its assets, um, and the evidence that they pointed to was that over the course of 15, or 15 years, there were just 14 arrests made at the motel, and that is over 200,000 rooms that were rented. Um, so they tried to say, yeah, we know you've been in existence for a really long time, but there were these 14 crimes that happened on the motel, <laughs> so we're going to try and take the motel. 
Um, surprisingly, <clears throat> they won the case. Uh, the motel won the case, and it wasn't seized. That is a very, very rare occurrence. It just kind of goes to show that they can really just say anything to try and take um, their property, people's property. But we tried to look more into if Massachusetts is doing anything to help fix this. They are trying to pass House Bill 3114, which would require a criminal conviction before property could be seized. So it would be kind of similar to New Mexico. Um, but currently this bill is under study order, which means that it'll be studied during recess. But I looked up what this meant because I wasn't sure. And it, it's usually used as a way to kill a bill silently. So just kind of, oh, yeah, sure, we'll look over it. But it's really not going to go through. So... Yeah, Massachusetts. On the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but it's, honestly, it's really odd because, like, Emma and I, we were, like, just kind of, like, comparing and contrasting the two. And it's funny that it, it might get killed because, like, for example, in New Mexico, the bill that was passed, um, it was a very, very bipartisan effort. Um, so, like, you had the Institute for Justice that was there. You had conservative think tanks, um, li more liberal think tanks there, all trying to push for this bill, and everyone kind of seemed for it. But then you have another state, on the other hand, who wants to silently kill a bill. Or, you know, like, yeah. oh, yeah, we'll look over it, maybe. So, like, it's just two very different experiences. And I imagine if we looked across all the other states, you would see similar variants. Yeah. Um, Sure, there's everything in between going on. Mm -hmm. Well, most of the you know the rating system they used, I think New Mexico got an A, Massachusetts got an F. The overwhelmingly most common grade was, I believe, a D plus. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> across most of the United States, <laughs> oh so yeah. it's pretty poor even across the board. With a few outliers, you know, some yeah. C's, B's. I think New Mexico was the only A, right? New Mexico New Mex was not even an A; it was an A minus, but it was still the only one that got out of the Bs. Um, and they, and it, I think it's also interesting because New Mexico modeled um, some of the laws that they did pass um, off of the first state that kind of got rid of civil forfeiture and made it criminal, which was North Carolina, and they're not even an A at all. So, um, I mean. It's gotten better um, in some areas, but like we said, like the most common is like a D. What I think is really interesting about this is <clears throat> private property in a capitalist society like ours is usually pretty sacred. You usually have to go way, 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 you know, out of the main, you know, out of something typical to have your private property seized. We have so many protections in our society for what's yours, uh, you know, and it's just amazing to me that the the standard for seizing someone's private property you think of other countries where maybe that would be something that you might expect that's more communal or is less kind of individualistic like our society but the fact that this is so uh, prevalent in the US um, is is really uh, amazing uh, and not amazing in a in a positive way. When you said when you said funny a minute ago, Cassie, I was going to say that that was uh, maybe some dark humor. Yeah, here. no. <laughs> uh, I think I think you're really hitting the nail on the head there. Sacred is almost exactly the right word to use, at least here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, all the way back to the Constitution, uh, looking at the writings of Thomas Jefferson, looking at the founding fathers and their influences. Our famous statement is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but that's derived from John Locke's life, liberty, and property. Mm -hmm. uh, they avoided the word property specifically to try and keep away from that snarly issue of slavery at the time. Mm -hmm. But even so, they incorporated the concept 
in the Bill of Rights. The mm -hmm. Fourth Amendment, unreasonable search and seizures, and the Eighth Amendment against unreasonable fines are both put in there in an attempt to preserve these rights for people. And it took until 1844 for the Supreme Court case that we referenced earlier to actually set precedent for this. Even after that point, it was very seldom used except in very special circumstances. What's been interesting with this is that it has been resurrected in this odd way. It's like some revenant of the legal system. We pulled it out during Prohibition and applied it, and every time we pulled it out of that drawer, it's gotten just a little bit worse, but usually it goes back away again. It kind of ebbs back out and disappears, but that's not what we've been seeing this time. It's not just being pulled out to deal with a specific issue. It was brought out this last time in the late 70s to deal with the war on drugs, and has just sort of stayed on the table gotten stronger gotten stronger gotten years. bigger and become more and more entrenched in different things to the point where now it's not just department of justice department of homeland security a significant portion of ice's funding comes from civil forfeiture to the point where they actually distributed pamphlets to their agents telling them what things to look for uh, giving advice on bringing realtors out to scout areas and figure out which homes were worth seizing um it gets extremely predatory and they are getting very very good at it yeah, and it's not super surprising, I and mean, we've talked about this in, in the course we had this semester, which is people follow incentives, right? And so <clears throat> when you give local police departments or the federal government incentive to seize things and give them real monetary um, incentives to do that, it's not surprising that then that's what they do, and then it's not surprising that then there's pushback against changing it because you're taking away their, their resources, which have become part of their budget. Right. Well, not just the presence of positive incentives, but the utter lack of negative incentives. <clears throat> yeah. uh, even if this doesn't go through, for the 20% of people that do manage to beat this, there's no repercussions that come down on the group that's doing the forfeiture if it's found to have been unreasonable. And honestly, records are so poorly kept that it's difficult to go back and find historical examples to ascertain whether abuses have occurred. So it's a win-win for them. Yeah. So, what can we do about this? You list a few solutions. Uh, what are our what options do you come up with as a team for improving this? So, um, the most I guess what, you, what you'd say is the most extreme uh, solution to this would be just outright abolishment entirely. Um, so, there's two ways to go about this. One is just like state by state abolishment. Um, we have three states already that have abolished it, which is New Mexico, North Carolina, and Nebraska. And this would be a workable solution in the sense that each one of these states has been able to do it through bipartisan effort. So there's definitely room on both sides and a voice on both sides that's wanting and willing to deal with this issue and actually get it abolished. Now, the problem, though, is even if it were abolished across the country in every single state, it wouldn't necessarily matter and address the issue because there's still the issue of at the federal level, it's still a major problem. Mm -hmm. So our number one solution would really be to just abolish it at the federal level entirely and get rid of it, get rid of the equitable sharing program, get rid of the kickbacks, get rid of everything. Um, so that would remove all the incentives, of course, to, you know, uh, abuse, uh, for law enforcement to abuse their power and would also get rid of this scheme that's basically serving as a extra budgetary measure for a lot of law enforcement agencies. Um, 
But the problem is, this is probably a long-term, in the long run, this will probably be a workable solution. In the short term, though, we don't see this as being a workable solution simply because, as we saw with our previous um, attorney general, he was really big on um, making civil forfeiture a thing again and actually resurrected it compared to the previous administration with Eric Holder, who tried to rein it in. Yeah, thankfully, Congress quashed that. So that, yeah. that was failed. <laughs> Equitable sharing is not currently in force. Thankfully, yeah, but it does seem like under an administration that is pretty big on uh, uh, law and order that doing away with civil forfeiture would be on their radar well, for sure. sure. Certain values of law and order. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what else? Our second real option that we came out with, uh, we, we kind of tried to divide <clears throat> this up into two general options. The first, as he mentioned, is abolishment. And that's kind of the, the gold standard, perhaps, the one that we wish we could attain but it doesn't seem terribly likely, and there are actually some downsides to it. As we mentioned earlier, although this is a tool that is being abused, it does have its uses. It does have an appropriate context in which it is the only way for the government to get at certain crimes. So, the next option is to alter the current system. And under that heading, we've kind of come up with three general recommendations. The first is to restore the assumption of innocence, so bringing it closer in line with the criminal proceedings, so that instead of assuming guilt and forcing the individual who is the owner to prove that it was not involved with a crime, put the burden of proof back onto law enforcement. Force them to bring forth evidence that shows why exactly they think this is worthy of a seizure, and bring it back in front of a jury. Put it in front of a group of people who can determine whether this is reasonable, and don't just put it down to between a he said, she said, where one person has a badge. The second recommendation we had was a reallocation of forfeiture-derived funds. We talked earlier about states that have moved this from direct receipt by the uh, law enforcement to the state level, but the fact remains that in most states, these funds are either 100% going to the local police who do the seizure, or in most cases are split between them and the attorneys general. It still keeps it all in the family, as it were, and gives very little incentive for there to be any oversight exercised. So our proposal here is to try and remove that incentive by requiring that any funds that are derived from this be put towards programs that are outside of the justice system. You can still say, hey, this is going to increase the amount of funds that are available to fund you, but you're not going to be able to take this and put it directly in your own pot. The last thing that we uh, want to recommend, and we really can't emphasize this enough, is increasing the transparency. Because at the moment, there's almost none. Let me see, how did I put this in here? So right now, 17 states have no requirement whatsoever that records be kept. Of the states that do require records be kept, only two discriminate between civil and criminal forfeiture. Um, The records are confusing, incomplete, and inaccessible. It's the perfect place to hide this sort of issue and make it very, very difficult for anyone to even enforce or ascertain whether abuses have occurred unless they see it happening. So really, the biggest thing we would want to have happen whether our end goal is alteration or abolishment overall. The first step is going to have to be reforming this system. What we specifically want to recommend is that any system would be instituted at the federal level, would be um, devolved onto all of the states, and at minimum require the records of detailed description of the property that's being seized, the justification given for the seizure, the value of the property in question, and believe it or not, these are all things that aren't currently recorded, (laughs) And if the forfeiture is successful, the exact use of the funds that are obtained through it. 
just seems like some basic reporting requirements that you would want upon seizing people's private property. Some measure yes. of accountability. <laughs> some modicum of <clears throat> accountability. We'll take what we can get at this point. Yeah, I like these um, these choices. I mean, I, I agree that you know this one just some things you learn about just seem so egregious that it's hard to believe that they happen in America, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I was just having a conversation with another group about American territories and the you know remaining uh, pieces of colonialism that we participate in, and I couldn't help you know couldn't help the irony associated with. Uh, without having representation in the federal government of American citizens, that that was one of the driving forces for the original Declaration of Independence was no representation in the government. And so this is another one that is just so clearly antithetical to our notions of private property, to our notions of innocence, to our notions of how the criminal justice system works. Sure, we call it civil forfeiture, but this is, this is taking away people's property based on a guess that they're doing something wrong. Um, which just seems way out of line with other things that we think about and understand about the American identity and the way that we, the way we treat people. So, is there anything else that we haven't covered already, from your description of the, of the prevalence of this to the solutions that we should leave the listeners with? I think one of the things that didn't make it into the final report. It was originally going to be one of our formal recommendations that we ended up leaving out. But this does happen more often than you think. Um, out of this group of five people who are actually studying government service, only one of us had ever heard of this process before. And this is a self-selecting group of people that's already interested in this sort of thing. So education is going to be key, but also, if you are ever involved in this, please, please don't be one of the 80% that simply rolls over and says, fine, you can have it. Mm -hmm. You will probably lose. It's just the way that the dice come out. But... This is never going to change if we don't see this coming out more, if we don't see more awareness, and if we don't see people bringing this to court. It's, <laughs> it's as bleak as that sounds. Yeah, I was going really... to touch on um, the Institute for Justice does a lot with civil forfeiture. Um, and, like, they specifically, like, even with the case study in New Mexico, they did so much to get it passed where, I mean, if you go on their website, they're basically like, if this has happened to you, contact us immediately mm -hmm. because, like, they, like, they're trying, like, they're trying to go through the Supreme Court with this, some of this stuff right now, which that's, like, a different argument because, like, you could go off the Fourth Amendment or the Eighth Amendment. And so that's a whole different, like, mm -hmm. um, argument that you could get into. But um, the Institute for Justice has done a lot. Um, so I, I applaud them for all their work. And one thing that they're really good at doing is checking on the states like New Mexico, for example, and making sure that it's actually being implemented. But they're doing what they're saying they're doing. Because yeah. originally, like with New Mexico, they weren't. And the Institute for Justice came back and we're like, we're going to sue you. So do it. Yeah. And that was really interesting because then they started implementing everything that they said they would. So yeah. the yeah. other outcome from this that's important to remember um, the comment that we quoted there at the end uh, from Justice Thomas about it being an egregious and well-chronicled well abuses, that actually came out of a case that they were not able to hear. That was Leonard versus Texas, where the state of Texas seized the value of a home that was sold in Pennsylvania. And even though they could produce a bill of sale that proved the sale occurred, they still took it. And the, the people haven't seen that $200,000 again. The Supreme Court doesn't get to choose the cases that come before it. In most cases, I'm a pretty conservative guy, and I would argue that it is the job of Congress to pass this sort of legislation, but there has been ample chance for that to occur, 
and it's just not happening. So if we are going to have to rely on a judicial outcome for this, there has to be a case brought before the court that they can actually rule on. Now, hopefully the current case between Tins and Indiana will produce a ruling on the Eighth Amendment, but we'd really like to see something coming down through a application of the Fourth Amendment as well. Make this as airtight as possible. Yeah, framing it as an unreasonable search and seizure seems like a, a, a good path to take this. Um, uh, all right, team. Well, this is one of those issues that once you learn about, you can't unlearn. <laughs> and um, and it's another one that is um, you know pretty bipartisan, right? I mean, I think libertarians and liberals can get in the same boat on this, um, from the intrusion of government to the protection of minority rights. And that never happens. Uh, yeah, and there are a few things where that's the case. Um, so uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing this episode on the podcast because I think this is yet another example where if there was just more awareness of the absurdity. Uh, of it that maybe we could get something done on it. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. And uh, thanks for letting me share this on the podcast.